Hey guys, this is Manny Gonzalez from Bottom of the Bottle. Thanks for tuning in. I just want to spend a couple moments talking about today's podcast. Um, there are a couple things to really point out that we really didn't dive into as well as we should have. The first one is that Adam and I were outside during this podcast. It was one of the first times we were able to do this and had the time to do it. Um, as a result, it is New England. It is late August when we recorded this. And so there's a lot of crickets in the background. You also have the sound of trucks going back and forth and the ice bucket, which in retrospect was really loud. <laughs> but that's how we kept our wines cool because it was a pretty warm day. Um, we also referenced someone named Chiro. Chiro is a good friend of ours. He is also our Italian wine specialist at Horizon Beverage and an amazing wealth of knowledge and information when it comes to Italian wines. And I referenced him in the beginning talking about the regional and the um, neighborhood culture within winemaking, where it's not just the country or the, the sub-region or the region or the village. Sometimes it's the vineyard or the neighborhood. And we had a great conversation about that. Check out that podcast called Ulysses' Apron. Um, also, I want to apologize right off the bat to Christina Pato because I made kind of a stupid joke about Pato meaning duck because it does. And I'm very awkward and I make really awkward jokes. You hear it when you hear the podcast. Don't judge me. Also, to recap a little bit, Phylloxera was this little insect that devastated the vines throughout Europe. So when we talk about Phylloxera, know what that means and what that is. And it specifically devastated France. Um, I mentioned Perone. Perone is a device that you drink wine out of or beer out of. And it uses gravity and it pushes um, air through one side and the wine or the cava, which is the sparkling wine of Spain or the beer, comes flowing through this beautiful arc. Uh, a couple other things. I had, I didn't have a cold. I don't have COVID, but I definitely lost my voice the night before and uh, my voice was a little agitated. Um, a couple other things. Two more things. Well, three. What does Rioja mean? It's a compound word, which I meant to say during the podcast. It means Rio, river, Oja. It's the name of the river. Rio, Oja, compound Rioja, which is a very small river. It's not that important, but it gave the region its name. Um, I mentioned that Alicante Boucher is a Spanish grape. It is a bit of a um, debate among scholars. It is a hybrid of Grenache. It's also called Garnacha Tintaria. I think it comes from Spain because it bears the name Alicante, which is a region in Spain in Levante, not far from Valencia. So I'm just going to go with that. And the last, I made a statement that Pinot Noir may be linked to Syrah. Now, I didn't research this. I heard it from someone, and I say this through the podcast. But I did some research to it. And it appears that Pinot Noir is a parent varietal to Syrah. So I wanted to do some um, homework on what we talk about because we're not experts. And we are talking about wine with a lot of emotion and a lot of passion. And oftentimes we will give information that is either not clear, not correct, or 
not fully disclosed. And so I want to disclose as much as I can. Anyways, thanks for tuning in. This is a very long opening, but I hope you guys enjoy it. And we'll see you in Alsace for our next podcast. I shouldn't have given that away, but I did. Cheers. I know you're going to ask if this is the uh, Irish Justin Bieber. Ooh. It's not. It's, <laughs> I was kind of hoping you were going to leave with K-pop this week, but you know. <laughs> You know, I thought it would be, uh, it would make sense since we're drinking mostly Spanish wines here to do something with a little bit of, uh, Irish Gaelic heritage, but this is actually not Irish. This is a Spanish composer named Cristina Pato. She is, um, super amazing, uh, started as a, a classically trained pianist, went to, but also plays what's called the Galician bagpipes in an area called Green Spain, and, um, in the, geez, that must have been um, 12 years ago, she was at a party, um, I think here in New England, and Yo-Yo Ma happened to be there, and a friend of hers, she went to go meet Yo-Yo Ma and talk about piano, um, but her friend went up to Yo-Yo Ma and was like, oh, my friend Christina plays the Galician bagpipes, and he's like, oh my god, that's awesome, you should have her come over, and we'll do something together, and um, uh, she ended up jamming with him, and then she ended up touring with him with the Silk Road Ensemble, um, from uh, which basically musicians from all over the world. So they had like tabla players, people from uh, Israel. There was actually a great—I didn't play it today—but a great video of her performing live with the Galician bagpipes um, and uh, Yo-Yo Ma playing upright, playing his ten million dollar Stradivarius cello, but playing it like an upright basic. Doom, 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 doom. And it was one of the coolest things, and, and why, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to first of all, any chance I get to listen to her is, is great, but um, why I wanted to play it today was because, um, you know, when we think of Europe, we think of this kind of homogenized reality, and even Europeans will say, uh, I'm European, I'm not American. Um, but even within these countries, like when we talk with Chiro, you know, it, everything is divided by neighborhood, by village, by region, sub-region. And you had all these different influences in in Spain, um, which created the wine industry that we have today. Um, it's an amalgamation of different cultures and different identities, which is kind of cool. So that's why we played Christina Papa. Yeah, you're getting philosophical right away. I mean, this is just I mean, this is what you do. I don't know why I'm shocked. Well, Pato also means duck in Spanish, so I think it's kind of cute that her name is is duck, Christina mm -hmm. Duck. It's fantastic. It could, it could also be a warning. <laughs> <coughs> Christina Duck! <laughs> you know. That's awesome. <coughs> so, um, yeah, I, as we always do, we lead him with cool music. That's not Justin Bieber, because I'm just not going to, to get that. But it's okay, because um, it lets me say it every week over and over again. <laughs> I'm Adam Cataldo. He's Manny Gonzalez. We are Bottom of the Bottle. We're not going to forget to introduce ourselves again, like we do every week. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, we're, you know, it's been a, it's been a couple weeks. And when we last left all of you, all nine of you who listen, who apparently is not my mom. Yeah, two more people. And we have uh, <clears throat> we have a new fan in India. There we go. So but, branching out the world. You know, it, it was interesting. I, Manny gets stats and we, we realized that my mom is in fact not listening. 
every single time. <laughs> so I, I'm, you know, it's, I got to figure out who else knows me. It, it actually, when I check the stats, it'll say on there, not Adam's mom. Exactly. It's amazing <laughs> how Spotify knows that. So, yeah, we were talking about phylloxera and its effect on the, the wine world in France in particular because we've been focusing on France for the last several months. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pivoting to Spain now mostly because Manny loves Spain and we have not let him, you know, have that moment with wines that he holds in the India. <laughs> if you guys saw his post on, on the Instagram about Alejandro Fernandez when he unfortunately passed, um, Spanish wine's really important to Manny. And uh, so he's going to be talking mostly today because there's little I can add that he doesn't already have. Um, I'm here to drink the uh, the rainbow of wines that we have. Is pretty much it what I'm rainbow. here for. It's so. actually a rainbow. We yeah. taste the rainbow. We do. We have we, we have uh, white, red, and rosé today, so it's going to be cool. But um, I think it's it, it's interesting to talk about Spain uh, in relation to phylloxera as kind of we like to connect the you know as we go because. I don't think we historically talk about, we talk about philosophy, we talk about how it devastated France. We, we say it devastated Europe, but we really talk about France in particular, because yeah. that's the center of the wine world. But we don't necessarily go into how it affected Spain and to a lesser extent Italy. So, um, but it did, and we still impact, we'll still change things. And it's kind of a, it's kind of doing a disservice to Spain to not about how they pivoted and how they changed and adapted and so on. Is there, they're really important winemaking country too. They're no slouch. They make, I mean, acreage-wise, they're one or two, right? In, they're, in, they're, in the world. There's more land under vine in Spain than anywhere else in, yeah. in the world, and most of that is in in the center of Spain in La Mancha, um, where I mean, we can spend forever talking about uh, a region that maybe you might only see two or three bottles on, yeah. but you know, the, the, the most widely planted varietal next to Chardonnay is a grape called. Um, uh, Aaron, which comes from La Mancha, and it's only grown in La Mancha, and it typically makes very insipid wines, or they use it oftentimes for brandies. Um, but there's more of that planted in the world than Pinot Noir, more than Pinot Grigio, more than um, Sauvignon Blanc, wow. like more than Merlot. It's just wild how much of that varietal is planted. Um, and it's kind of stuff you wash down with your meal, they mix it with Coke called Calimocho, um, Coca-Cola that is and uh, um, it's something that they'll have like truck drivers will drink it during lunch because they're working all day they're tired but they want a little wine and they'll mix it with coke and they look back on the truck and they'll keep on going so it's a, it's a, it's a really great drinking culture in Spain <laughs> like the, the, the delivery drivers like in the in the Mack trucks are, are yep. having wine for lunch that's fantastic oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah I mean um, first of all before we, we forget uh, we are drinking some really cool wines today and some special wines. We have a rosé, as always, because that's Adam's thing, from Aranzano, which is a really unique producer um, in Navarra, but they have their own designation we'll talk about later. Um, their own, what we call DO in Spain. It's kind of like the AOC or the DOC um, in Italy. And then we have Jardín de la Imperatriz, the white and the red from Rioja. We'll talk about that stuff later. But um, yeah, so. Spain was really transformed after Phylloxera. I mean, there were a lot of things that really changed in Spain, but one of the big things, you had not just French winemakers coming from Bordeaux, coming into places like Rioja, Ribera del Duero, where Alejandro's from, and really showing different techniques, bringing French oak with them, because before that, for a good 
300 years, Spanish wines were aged in American oak because of the trade of the Americas. And before that, it was all um, amphora and clay, basically. Um, and they would drink wine not out of bottles, but out of skins, like the like little canteens. And the Perone that you have, which is this glass jar that you can put kava into and drink kava or drink champagne out of, as Adam has done with Comte de Champagne from, um, uh, from Tatanje. Uh, which is an amazing champagne, by the way. Um, but historically, it was either made of wood or they would use leather to make them out of so a lot of hides. Um, <clears throat> but the French brought French wine making techniques, they brought French techniques in fermentation, um, they brought cleaner winemaking into places like Rioja that dramatically changed. And you also had some producers from Rioja like. Um, Marques de Morieta or Marques de Menescal, which are two kind of classic old school producers that went to Bordeaux. Um, I think Morieta went there actually to escape taxes for a while or something like that, but went to Bordeaux, studied how to make wine, and then brought back that winemaking technique. The same with Vega Cecilia and Iribera, which is one of the most you know, iconic and expensive wines in the world. Um, and and it, it really changed the landscape. And once again, drawing back on our conversation before about phylloxera, and how, yeah, it was pretty awful and devastating, but how with ingenuity, how with perseverance, um, it forced winemakers to rethink how they produce, rethink what grapes grow where. I mean, like, I did an event last night with wines from the Jura, and before Phylloxera, there were 48 or 50 different varietals grown in the Jura. Now there's five. <clears throat> now there's five. They went from 50,000 acres to five, and the wines they produced in those 5,000 acres are amazing, right? So it really helped. <coughs> I'm you, lost, okay. you lost your voice last night is what's going I'm on. I'm okay. Um, but it, it really helped, I think, solidify this concept of producing better wine rather than bulk consumption. consumption you know. Um, and I think nowhere did that happen more into a more important region in Spain than Rioja. Because Rioja is, you know, first of all, Rioja doesn't mean red wine. People think it means Spanish red wine. We have a white from Rioja today. They make sparkling wines. They do rosés as well. Are um, you know, rosés, which are, are pretty fun and cool wines, um, but it has been the center of wine production in Spain for hundreds of years. Um, so one reason why we started with a Galician bagpipe player is uh, so Galicia is not close to Rioja. Um, it's in an area called Greens. It's not far. Uh, you can get there in about three hours driving, but. Um, it's in an area that's called Green Spain, and Galicia comes from the word Gaelic. Um, and people that live in Galicia are Gallegos and speak a language called Gallego, which is a, a hybrid of Gaelic and, and Spanish. And um, uh, you know, the Celtic influence was really synonymous with Spain. Um, there was a tribe of people called the Iberians. And when the Romans came and started trying to take over Spain, we'll get into the deeper history later, uh, they banded with the Celts and they became the Celtiberians. And what's really cool, you know, I said this before, when it comes to uh, wine regions, um, we, they don't grow grapes in Rioja because it's just a great terroir. Um, they don't grow grapes in Champagne because it's a great place to make sparkling wine. These were all historically important areas that Adam going for Rosé, <coughs> strategically. So if you controlled Rioja, you controlled basically the Camino de Santiago Compostela, which is this pilgrimage that goes from, um, 
France all the way to Galicia, right? And then you control these crossroads and politically it was a real important area. And so the vines were planted there because water was too dangerous to drink. And so you made wine. And, um, and that's why they made, historically Rioja is like the, the epicenter capital. So I think, not to be generic, but I think Rioja is a really important place to, to start. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me with Spain. So France gets the, gets the publicity because the, the core varietals in France have become international varietals, right? I mean, it's, we, we call them that, even most of them have their origin in France. Yeah. Um, Italy, we talk about indigenous varietals for the most part, right? Because it's, you know, Sangiovese has 90 different names and, and so on, but the indigenous varietals in, in, in Italy. Spain, in that way, is very similar to, to Italy, where we're talking predominantly about the indigenous Spanish varietals that, that go into those wines, uh, and we're labeling them by place, you know, on top of that. So again, it's Rioja, it's not just some generic red, or it's not, Rioja's not a grape, it's, it's what it is. Yeah. Um, but it is not, in many, in many ways, um, it is not kind of caught on in the same sense that, um, you know, Italy has. And one of the reasons I think this is, is well, for historical perspective and, and just in general for Europe, um, Europe had a rough 20th century. Yeah, I think it's safe it's to bad. say yeah. on, on the whole. I mean, if you if you start with, um, even even if you go, even, you know, late 19th century, if you, so if you include Paloxera, you have revolutions going on and, and, and instability and whatnot and, and all sorts of places. The, the, the transition from feudalism to, you know, democracy or, or more for, for in general, it was not an easy thing that happened. It took a long time. So you had all sorts of nonsense going on. That's the kind of the 19th century. Um, Wine-wise, you have phylloxera. 20th century comes you have the depression which affected more than america it affected everything yep. um you had world <clears throat> war one then you had the great depression then you had world war ii which uh, it was fought in europe so these places were you know devastated um spain had an interesting <laughs> you know time during world war ii uh, as did everyone in that in, in that frame but um battles were fought in these places and there was real devastation and it, it set things back, not just in the wine world, and again, when we, we say it every week, uh, the history of wine follows the history of the world, because when, when things are good and innovation is happening, wine tends to, to follow and things are improving. Um, when things aren't fantastic, wine is still there, but the, the wine kind of reflects the, the, the time in that sense. Uh, and Spain, for, for whatever reason, just took a little longer to kind of adapt and, and, and innovate. Uh, and, but when they did, they do amazing things. Uh, we're not, we don't have one today, but Rivero del Duero, which is one of the uh, you know, more famous DOs in, in Spain, didn't get that DO designation until the early 80s. Yeah, 82. Uh, they were making you know, bulk wine and rosé and whatnot. Like, like, you know, I would still drink it, but, but bulk rosé. Um, when all along they're sitting on this land that could make this beautiful, structured, elegant, you know, powerful red wine. And it's just the, the, that, for whatever reason, that a, that evolution took was a slower process in Spain. And I think now Spain is finally 
starting to get that recognition and starting to get some of the notoriety they deserve uh, for their regions and the wines and and, and so on because it, it's it has been slow yeah I, I 100% and um, <clears throat> you know there were there were a lot of different things that were happening you know through Spain from the 17th century you had the um, well first of all I mean if we want to go all the way back they were making wine in Spain before Campania was making wine because uh, the Phoenicians came you know 4,000 years ago near uh, Gibraltar in the south of Spain founded a town called Gader which is now called Cadiz which is a coastal town um, I believe it was one of the towns that uh, Columbus had sailed from um, in the south of Spain they settled there they brought winemaking uh, they partnered with the Iberian tribes the Celtic tribes the Greeks came in um, the Greeks were you know still pretty vicious but not as vicious as the Romans you know there were, I mean at the end of the day too I think the Romans who were less interested in making people in this area Roman and they were more interested in their money and so it was like taxing and and you know we're gonna put up our statues we're gonna put up our things I'm sure a historian would, would you know slap me for, for saying this but um, they would adapt their religion to the religions of around them because they realized this is the best way to get people to kind of follow you I mean you can look at Christmas and a lot of the celebrations from Christianity have to do with paganism and, and the Roman Saturnalia which was um, their uh, what do you call it their solstice celebration they created that they turned that into Christmas yeah so Christians would celebrate with them you know um, <clears throat> so it's a, it has a real old winemaking tradition but in the seventh century you had the Moors that came in and controlled a lot of Spain in 711 um, and uh, which is also you know uh, a really fun convenience store and if you ever get to Japan go to a 7-eleven and eat their sandwiches they are amazing uh, 7-elevens in Japan are like legendary but um, what's interesting is that the Moors came in which were people that were from northern northern um, Africa <clears throat> they came in and they kind of because of Muslim law banned a lot of grape production they were still on the download drinking wine just like in prohibition you know the best wine was in in the Senate chambers um, even though they were all banning you know, doing what they could to ban the sale of alcohol um, you could walk into um, a Sharif's you know palace and probably drink great wine um, but for political reasons you know we're not drinking any wine here but they were still producing some wine they were still growing grapes um, mostly they were saying for consumption for grapes just to eat grapes but people were still making wine but um, you know through the uh, Spanish War of Secession um, you had you know phylloxera which didn't devastate as much as France but they definitely had a hit with it um, towards the end of the 19th century you had the First World War you had the Spanish Civil War um, all these things and you know Franco was pretty devastating to to many aspects of, of Spanish culture but really devastated the wine industry and things became bulk simple production and it wasn't really until the 80s when you saw a lot of producers in the 70s like um, uh, Torres from Catalonia that really started stepping up Spanish winemaking and making something that was on par with what was happening in Europe you know um, what I really think is interesting about the grapes when we talk about indigenous grapes <clears throat> When we think about the indigenous grapes, for example, of the Cote of your classic GSM Grenache Sera Movedra, 
only one of those grapes is indigenous to France because Grenache is a Spanish varietal, Garnacha, that probably comes most likely from the region of Aragorn, not to be confused with Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, although it looks a little bit like if you drive through the countryside, it's near the Pyrenees, it looks a little bit like, um, like Middle uh, Earth, like, like Middle Earth, like uh, specifically like uh, Rohan, uh, because there's a lot of plains and there are mountains and it's really beautiful. Um, Movedra is Monastral, which comes from most likely from an area called Levante, which is the center part of Spain. Um, Carignan is Carignana and comes from the village called Carignana in Aragon, but they no longer grow it there. There's Tempranillo, um, you know, so there's all these indigenous varietals that eventually made their Alicante Boucher, which is a hybrid of Grenache that you find sometimes in, um, in Tuscany, is a Spanish grape. You know, and the reason has to do with like politics ultimately. Uh, so, for example, the king of Barcelona in the 15th century married into the, it was uh, the Duke of Barcelona rather, married into the family of uh, Aragon, which were the kings of Aragon, joined Catalonia and Aragon as one country that spilled into the south of France, Sardinia, Sicily, um, and parts of center, center Italy, like Tuscany mainly. So all these varietals just made their way out and, you know, varietals like people change as they go to the next culture and grow and develop and become synonymous with those cultures there. 100%. It's, it's you can't, <clears throat> this is a very long-winded way of saying, you can't talk about European wine, French wine, Italian wine without talking about Spain because it's all connected. The European wine world is it, all, it's, it's all connected. Yep. And you know, and I think that's too that it's it, it the France thing in particular, because of what and it's it, you said the Southern Rhone, I think that's the good that's that's the that's the best comp, I think, because they had the notoriety. Shout out to Pop is the original, you know, um, AOC yeah. and what they did. They kind of took those Spanish varietals and made them their own and gave themselves a name before anyone else could could hop on board and do it. So they kind of stole the the, they stole the, the thunder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, Spain could be making these fabulous wines from the exact same grapes. You know, here's France, by the way. Oh yeah, like, well, look at ours. We're going to do blah blah blah. They were just they were kind of better at the the politics of marketing the the, oh, the wine before. You know, they they had they had that down. Yeah. Um, and. Again, it's it's the you couple that with the and I'm I'm, I'm pivoting slightly here, uh, but even just the way some of the, the, the Spanish wine laws still still written with Reserva and Gran Reserva and so on, the the when you hear Reserva, you go oh that's a Reserva wine that must be really good. You hear Gran Reserva that's a that's a that's a Gran Reserva wine that must be be really good. It has a really specific meaning in Spanish wine law for aging and oak and, and, and so on. Um, but that might not, not necessarily translate to what you like as being something that you're gonna wanna drink, you know? Um, and, but just labeling wise, we go, oh, that's gonna be, that's gonna be fantastic, there's reserve on it. That's, that's gonna be really good. Well, if you don't like, you know, wines that are aged in oak for a longer period of time, a Grand Reserve of wine might not do it for you. Though yeah. they're conditioned label-wise to think, oh, yeah, that must be what 
that this is going to be really good because of the way it's labeled. Yeah. So, um, and they're starting to come around on some of these things too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so, like, just on that, when you're reading a label from Spain, you'll see different things on there. Like, you'll see Reserva, Crianza, Gran Reserva. They really do, as you mentioned, they have a specific meaning that's not arbitrary. Where you find some wines out of California will say like Private Reserve. Well, it's not. I mean, it's it's. It can be, it can be like, okay, this is our reserve level, but oftentimes it's marketing. Um, Spain and Italy also have very specific laws when it comes to reserve or reserva. Um, they don't do anything like Crianza or Grand Reserva, but Spain or Italy will have reserva laws. But it, in Italy, it depends on the region. So like a reserva in Barolo is different than a reserva in um, Barbaresco, even though they're right next to each other. Uh, and same varietal, oftentimes same winemakers. In Spain, Across the board, it's almost uniform. There's there's a couple of exceptions. So basically, we have a style called Hoven, which means young. So Hoven are just you won't see an age statement on it. Um, you'll see a vintage, but not like how long the wine's been aged for. There's no designation. Um, some producers just don't put them on at all, and the wine can see you know a year and a half to two years in oak, uh, three years in the cellar, but they don't they don't put any statement on it because if you want to tweak it a little bit. You're kind of stuck. You can't, you know, if you want to call your one Crianza, but you want to age it slightly less, you can't, you know. Um, so it gives some winemakers more freedom. So you have a Hoven style, which is typically young. So like our white wine uh, today from um, I think on the Beatrice is uh, this is kind of their entry level called Jardín um, de or the Garden of the Empress, is a Hoven wine. Um, they have a crianza, which means, uh, crianza means to raise or to rear. And this is when you start to raise the wine for a short time in oak. Now throughout Spain, it's six months um, and then a year in the bottle. So legally a year and a half total. In Rioja and in Ribera, it has to be specifically in those DOs one year. So that's been one year in oak. Gran Reserva is the same throughout Spain. So it's one year in oak and then three years in the winery. Most producers do about a year and a half to two years and, uh, for Reserva, rather, and then Grand Reserva is two years in oak and a minimum of five years at the winery. So two years in oak, three years in the bottle. Most people are about two and a half, two and a half. Um, you know, two, like three years in oak and two years in the bottle. But I mean, it dramatically changes the style of wine that you end up getting. Um, the benefit, at least for a lot of producers in, in Rioja, or at least when we think, okay, this wine might have a ton of oak to it, they're usually using historically over oak barrel. And this goes back to the trade with Americas. And I mentioned earlier, like the French brought French oak with them. Um, you started seeing it towards right around the time of like 1870s, 1860s with Marques Morieta and Marques Rascal. But it was really when the Bordelais started coming in in the 1880s, 1890s, they started bringing the French oak. Before that, it was American oak because there were trade with the Americas and they were getting all this white oak from um, from places like Minnesota and Missouri, going back to the Norton Bridal from last week. Um, and that started after, you know, trade with the Americas in the 16th century really started happening. And before that, it was amphora, it was all, you know, clay. Um, but when you read a label that says Reserva, Grand Reserva, I mean, it really does mean something, something specific. Um, whereas in France, it doesn't mean anything at all. At least the French are nice enough to not use it as often as some other people. Like yeah. It's the, nothing is, and this is not to knock Argentinian wine, 
but one of the reasons Malbec can be so frustrating if you're a consumer is you're looking at the shelf and reserve a Malbec, eight bucks, Argentina. And then you'll have another one next to it where it just says Malbec and it says Uco Valley and it's 25 bucks. Yeah. Like, why is the Reserva eight bucks and the other one, you know, 20, 25 bucks? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And because then you, it's a marketing term. And then you buy the Reserva because you think it's going to be superior wine. You're like, I don't really like this wine. I'm going to stay away from Malbec altogether. I'm going to stay away from Argentina altogether. Um, and we do that a lot. I think when we try wines for the first time, we assume, you know, uh, I remember I was working at this restaurant years ago and... This guy asked for, he's like, well, yeah, I don't really drink a lot of white wine, but I'll have a glass of Pinot Grigio. And it was just basic generic Pinot Grigio. I mean, it wasn't anything special. And, and um, I remember overhearing the waitress supportive for him, and he goes, yeah, Italians just don't know how to make white, great white wine. And I just wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because uh, you're talking about a wine that is meant to be simple quaffing wine. It's not even indigenous varietal to Italy, you know. Um, you're talking about a simple quaffing, quaffing white wine. But, you know, the white wines, and the white wines from Spain, we think of it as being a red wine climate. But it depends on where you're located. You know, the further north you go, like the Basque Country is, or at least what we get in the market, is almost all white wine. And the real light, crisp white wines. And the red wines are light and, and acidic. In Galicia, where Cristina Pata is from, you know, you get a lot of, they produce red wines there. But the mainstay of what you see is, is all white varietals. And the white wines in Galicia, and the white wines in Rioja, are ab... You know, absolutely fantastic. Um, so I just want to talk, like, just a moment about Rioja. Like, why is it important? I mentioned earlier it was like the crossroads. Um, it was politically very an important area to run and control. Uh, long before the AOCs, long before um, you know, people ripping off the name Chateau de Pop. Right around the 14th, 15th century, they were already starting to to del uh, make delimited zones throughout Europe. And Rioja was one of the first ones in Spain. And they actually had laws in terms of how much you can produce, what varietals you can use. Um, it wasn't within the region itself, but it wasn't something that was, you know, countrywide. But they, they had their own little, little set of laws for quality because the wines of Rioja were becoming well known. Um, and partly, you know, we talked about the French coming in, but the French were coming in long before that. Um, partly through the uh, um, the coming of the Santiago, the um, Compostela, that, that uh, pilgrimage. But the monks of Cluny, which are Benedictine monks and Cistercian monks from um, from Burgundy, and Cluny is located not far from Puyvesé in Maquinay, went and settled in Uribeiro Duero and Rioja in the 14th century and started teaching how to make wine. So I think there's a really cool relationship between France and Spain. It's not as arduous, it's not as um, tenuous as the relationships with Italy. And maybe because, you know, Italy still for a lot of old school French and old school Spanish were still Romans. And the Romans came through and conquered. But there was connection, you know, between France and Spain because, I mean, you could probably you know, talk about this better, but I think like all the royal families in Europe, for the most part, were related. You know, and the, um, when I'm, I forget the name, but what's the um, is it the Habsburg chin? Is yeah, that the one. I, the, the they were the Austrian side, yeah, right? Yeah, <clears throat> like the. I mean, it's I'm gonna. It's just this really pronounced. In the the thought process was that it was inbreeding. Yeah, you know. For, oh, it definitely was. I mean, I know that uh, Carlos 
the I want to say Carlos V. He was um, our Charles. I think was actually technically his real name, but they call him Carlos in Spain because he was the French factor of of um, of the royal family. But in Spain, couldn't he was always sick. Was you know I mean sadly kind of deformed and and couldn't have children because of the amount of inbreeding. And before he died, he I think he was going to give the kingdom of Spain to France, and I, apparently the rest of Europe was like. Hells no! Like this oh, could yeah. be a giant country, and so they had the war of Spanish War of Secession. Uh, France finally won, and the um, I think there was a treaty. The only the only way that other countries would allow this to happen was that they were still autonomous. They were still France and still Spain, but it was the French family that was now ruling Spain, and poor Catalonia. I mean, we can go on forever about Catalonia and how like they've always had a struggle in many ways had sided with the Austrian side because the, the Austrians are like, well, if you fight with us, we will give you, we will make Catalonia its own country. Um, and that didn't work out so well. Um, you know, but there's always been this kind of trade, I think, even before then with, with France. It was, they were less enemies. Um, I think they always had a common enemy like England or... Well, I mean, and this is, this leads into religion too, is so, it, um, Spain was staunchly Catholic. Yeah. I mean, though, you know, no one suspects the Spanish Inquisition, right? Like, we, we, <laughs> I mean, we, we even make jokes about how... The I mean, first it was weapon brutal. is surprise, surprise and fear. <laughs> right? I, it's the, but I mean, Spain was staunchly Catholic. Um, through the Reformation period where you have, um, you know, Protestantism taking hold in France, when you have uh, Henry doing you know, what he did in, in England and so on, um, Spain was, was staunchly Catholic. And the monarchy in France, for the most part, well, not, not always, but um, was Catholic, and they had Protestant nobles. So when you were looking for someone to aid you, well, you have a neighbor who is, who is Catholic and right next door. So yep. um, it, it's just, it's all, it's all connected. It's all, Europe's crazy. Europe is um, crazy. It's, it's why, like, when we, and this is not a, total this is a side but when we talk about American history uh, or specifically the United States history it, it's I have friends that are like that, that we're not it's not history it's modernism because we don't go back the the area does and the people do but the actual United States is so young compared to all these other countries and in, in, in the rest of the world we don't we don't use the same person they have thousands of years of fighting and figuring these things out and changing hands and so on where it's only been a couple hundred for yeah. over here. Yeah. So. There's a there's a saying that in the United States a hundred years is a long time, but in Europe a hundred miles is a long distance. Yeah. And here it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah and and I mean we can bring that right back to winemaking that there's some great winemakers in the United States, but you know, I'll, the best winemakers are really more so than ever adopting a European model of winemaking. Um, you know, it's in Napa, it's a warm, dry climate, much like Spain, and there are actually some great Tempranillos out of California. We don't see them very often, but they're great Tempranillos, they're great Syrahs, and those are all more um, arid. There's some really cool Grenaches coming from, yeah. from California. Beckman makes some great GSMs. Um, and you see a lot of producers that are that are trying something different than Chard, Cab, Pinot Noir, Merlot, because 
those are ultimately, I would argue, cool climate. Even Bordeaux is cooler climate than there's no relation to, to Napa in Bordeaux you know, in terms of climate. They're like so different. Um, closer to Rioja, so the, the climate in Rioja is, you know, uh, that we're drinking today is a northern uh, semi-continental climate. So we have you know, the Cantabrian mountains that separate the Basque country, the Bay of Biscay, Galicia is kind of off to the west a little bit. And just on the other side we have the Cantabrian uh, mountains that really start in Galicia and end all the way from Navarra, not far from where Aranzon is from, and uh, you know, creates a rain shadow that we always talk about, so you don't get any of that humidity that the Basque country gets, that Galicia gets, which is why those wines can be sometimes so light, and, um, especially in the Basque country, so light and, and bright and acidic. Um, so it's a little drier in Rioja, but the climate is cool. I mean, New England, uh, or not New England, but the uh, fall looks like New England. Wow. Um, but it's the vineyards that change colors, not the, not the trees, you know. Um, and then you have this, so like we call it Iberian Peninsula because the Greeks were the first ones to call it Iberian Peninsula because of a river that comes out of Sierra Cantabria Mountains. It's the largest river in Spain called the Ebro River that goes through Rioja, cuts down through Navarra, through Aragon, um, really skirts Priorat in Catalonia and then out to the Mediterranean. And it's one of the most influential rivers in terms of regulating climate, um, but also the soils are really buried in, um, in Rioja. So you get a lot of volcanic soils which are fertile, but it can still be challenging to grow grapes here. There's a lot of alluvial soils, calcareous clay, um, limestone, and this whole area at one point was underwater. So like how um, Spain was formed as a, as a, a physical place it was part of, I think, part of the African plate, and it collided with the Eurasian plate, created the Pyrenees in, um, in a very, you know, we say like things collided, they didn't really collide because it was like super slow. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Indian plate didn't collide with the Southern Asian plate to create the Himalayas. It kind of slowly happened, but it, so it, over, you know, the course of millions of years, you know, the Pyrenees were formed and then the whole interior of where Rioja's at, Rubira, Navarra, through Catalonia, was all an inland salt sea from now the Mediterranean and created this very mineral rich limestone subsoil that to me makes wines that are, you know, have a ton of finesse. So you get this cool climate. Um, you do get a, a decent amount of sun, so you get good ripeness of the grapes. You get varietals that are meant to be here. Um, in particular, we haven't really talked about the grapes yet, but in particular in Rioja, we're talking Tempranillo. Um, speaking, and it's funny. Speaking of Tempranillo. People think Tempranillo is like the mainstay varietal for Spain. Um, but you see it in Rioja, you see it in um, Castellón, which is like Toro, Extrema, uh, not Extremadura, no, that's for the south. Um, Toro, you see it in Zamora, um, Ribera, you see it in Rioja, and then you see it in La Mancha as well. But each sub-region or each each region, autonomous region has its own um, name for it. So in Ribera it's called Tinto Fino or Tinto Pais, uh, the fine dark grape or the or the country red grape. Uh, but the skins are a little thicker than the clone in, in Rioja which is more aromatic and lighter skinned, uh, thinner skinned, um, and then Sensibile is what they would call Tempranillo in La Mancha and it's its own animal there, you know. And, 
Uh, but that's really the, the, the pyramid or the triangle where you see, you see Tempranillo. Everywhere else it's like Grenache, um, Vedra, and um, Palomino in, in Pedro Jimenez in, in the south of Spain, you know. Um, but for me, Rioja really is like, you know, we started our podcast talking about benchmarks. It really is the benchmark of, of Spain, and it's a, it's a benchmark of the wine world because it has a sense of terroir, but it's also grown and developed over the years. It's not stuck in the 15th century or 14th century, which might seem romantic to drink those wines until you drink them. <laughs> you know? wow. This is what I think is cool, um, talking about terroir. So, one of the more widely planted grapes in, in France for bulk wine production <laughs> is Uni Blanc. Mm -hmm. Italy, if I remember correctly, in this line, it Trebbiano. Yes, it is. Trebbiano is the grape that used to, they used to blend with Chianti that almost ruined Chianti's reputation permanently. Mm -hmm. um, you do see some monovarietal Trebbianos coming out of Italy. They, they, they exist, uh, but it's not something that we get a lot of. It's not. It's not promoted. It's not publicized for the most part because it's you know the wine is. Yeah, it's fine. Yep, it's fine, right? There's nothing wrong with it. I would drink it if it was given to me, uh, but it's it, it, it's fine. And also, you know, the Italians know that it almost they were basically the very short truncated version. Uh, it's an easy grape to cultivate, so uh, Chianti. It was kind of like a stimulus thing for farmers. Where hey guys, you need to use Trebbiano and Chianti. It's easy for the farmers to grow. They they can sell it. There's not as much difficulty. And you have to blend it in with your can. That didn't work out so well. They don't have to do that anymore. It's fantastic. Uh, well, so the Rioja White that we've been drinking today is Trebbiano. It is Uni Blanc. It's, it, it's Biura. It is absolutely gorgeous. Um, it is crisp. It's complex. It's mineral. I wouldn't call that wine simple by any means whatsoever. Um, and it's bulk wine production in, in France. And it's kind of not talked about in Italy. But in Spain, we have this really gorgeous, you know, bulk yeah, wine. Absolutely. It's, and I mean, they definitely make bulk, bulk wines in, in Spain. Oh, of course. <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah. And this grape will, will make it in, in bulk wines. It's also, you know, we call it Macabeo, which is one of the grapes they use in um, uh, in Cava. It's one of the main grapes in Cava. Um, but, you know, the way that. So the backstory in Finca Lamperatrice is kind of cool. They're, um, so it translates, once again, it's a French connection. Um, we should just call this episode the French Connection. I think I'll call it the French there Connection. There we go. Um, but uh, the uh, translates to the farm of the emperors. Uh, Maria Eugenia Montejo was the last. Say that five times really fast. There was the last empress of uh, France who was married to Napoleon III, who in 1855 had the Expedition de Paris. That was um, uh, an expedition in France because the French morale was low, trying to show how great French culture was, and that's when they created the 1855 Bordeaux classification for the left bank, for the Medoc, um, and Oprion, which was kind of grandfathered in there, although it's not technically part of the Medoc. Um, when he passed away in 1873, she moved back to Spain, she moved to Rioja, uh, to um, a town called uh, Baño de Rioja, the Baths of Rioja, because there were some Roman baths that were here, when, when the Romans did get up here. Um, and, uh, and there's also hot springs as well, things where they call the baths. But um, she moved here and she started a single vineyard winery, uh, which is really unique 
um, not just in Rioja but but in Spain because typically you're blending different vineyards could be the same producer but you know my vineyards here I got another vineyard two miles away got another vineyard around the corner and you blend them together um, different villages different subregions of, of Rioja um, Rioja has three main subregions there's one called Rioja Oriental which used to be Rioja Baja which is the lower elevation you see a lot of Grenache here it's a drier or arid climate a ton of clay so the wines from there typically have more of like a, almost like a southern Rhone kind of thing to them um, you have Alavesa, which is actually technically, I think, part of the Basque country, um, but it is the coolest region in Rioja. Uh, the wines are much more Burgundian here. They're, they're uh, really nice bright fruit, but a little more acidic, very soft tannins. And then you have Rioja Alta, where this wine comes from. Um, and each of these subregions create a different style. If you blend them all together, you are Rioja. If you are all from Rioja Alta, you are Rioja Alta. If you're all from the town of, um, I would probably say the closest major wine town to this winery would be um, Otto, which is the, the capital of Rioja Alta. Um, that is, um, uh, you would be, if you all come, come from that area, you'd be Otto. So it's, and then finally, you have single vineyard wines called Vineiro uh, Singular. So they're basically trying to do what the French do, uh, what Burgundy does. So basic entry-level region, sub-region, so you have basic Burgundy, then you have Macan Village, you know, or you have um, uh, Cote d'Or as a basic region, and then you have Jember Chambertin as a village, and then you have Chambertin as the ground crew, or the single vineyard, um, and they're doing something similar here, and their reserve wines have been classified as uh, Vineyard uh, Singular, unique vineyards. There are all these different laws, like your vines have to be at least 35 years old. All of these vines are, are pretty old. Phylloxera never really did a ton of damage here. Some damage by the time Phylloxera came to Rioja, they figured out what was wrong. Like so, they, they knew how to combat it. Um, you, if you buy grapes, you have to have a 10-year partnership. Uh, it has to be a single vineyard, um, and it goes through a tasting panel. So it's not that easy to become one of these single vineyard designa designations. Their Finca Lamberatrice is that. Um, this wine is, this and the red are single vineyard wines. So it's a one contiguous uh, estate, it's about 100 acres. The bottom third goes to the reserve level to their and isolated plots for special releases. Everything north of that goes into our white wine and our red wine. Um, and the reserve white is like, it's phenomenal. You know, it's got oak aging to it, but it's not over the top that I think the Viero really carries the oak well. Um, and uh, the red that I we're actually both drinking now is Tempranillo, once again, Grenache. Um, there's a little bit of the white grape in here, Viora, which adds a little bit of acidity. I've never understood how this happens, but it makes the color a little more vibrant. Um, and then a random grape called um, Matura Tinta. And that's just kind of like chili flake in a, in a a sauce, you know, just a little spice um, that creates a nice balance to it. There is a, uh, I don't get it either, there is a uh, really pretty sheen to this wine mm -hmm. that they attribute to the Viera. Yeah. Just, I don't, again, I don't know how that works I don't or, either. or whatnot, but it, it, it does. So, yep. you know, it's. And it's traditional to do that too. Historically, you don't, a lot of producers don't do that anymore unless they're making rosés. Um, 
and which we can talk about Thursday afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for you, save the creme de la creme for, for the last. Of course. Um, but uh, so you know, anyways, Maria had found this winery, founded this winery, um, and I think it was already planted beforehand, so it's pretty old. Uh, and in the '90s, these two brothers, they're nice brothers, purchased the plot and um, dedicated it to single vineyard production. Since then, uh, which there's maybe three or four producers in Spain that are not don't just make single vineyard wines, but are a single estate. You know, other producers might have one single vineyard they might bottle as a special kind of deal, but you know, their vineyards once again are located you know throughout the, the region or the village or the the, the, the what they call municipal or the subregion. Um, but the um, but the uh, uh, I forgot lost my train of thought. Well, yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> I was going to ask. You know, are we sure the brothers were nice? Because I mean, you went out of your way to so the brothers. They were nice brothers. They were nice. <laughs> they are very. They are very very nice. Um, Eduardo is uh, actually. I got to work with him uh, uh, three years ago, and we communicate back and forth. Um, and when I have questions about Spanish wines, I just send him an, an email or a WhatsApp, and he's always within. You know even with the time difference within like three hours, he always responds back. So that doesn't happen very often with, with winemakers. No. And not that, you know, we say not that ratings matter, but these wines always do well for ratings. And I think they're a good bridge between old world and new world. So the red is Crianza, so it's 12 months in a mixture of French oak, 70% uh, and then 30% American oak. So that American oak adds, to me it always adds like the cinnamon baked spice kind of thing and French oak adds a little more elegant vanilla um, and I think a little more of a dark complexion because the grain's a little tighter in the French oak. Um, it doesn't allow as much oxygen to come into it as American oak does and uh, so the wine doesn't, it, the natural fruit is preserved a little, a little longer. So this is, this is old world obviously so it has the, it has the structure um, it has some of that, a little bit of that kind of earthiness, terroir, you know, to it. But it's very fruit forward also. So yeah. I, I mean, if you're, I agree, if, you, if you're into fruit forward California Reds and you want to try an old world wine, this is a good bridge wine for you because it has that fruitiness that you want up front, all the, all the good things about it. Um, but it also has the structure and, the, um, and a little bit of that and that earthiness I don't want to say funk this wine's not funky um, but it, it it gives you some of that that flavor that if you really start to branch out into old world wines you're going to get more pronounced yeah um, and it's just it's subtle it's there but it's subtle so yeah. it's not going to overwhelm you and, and be off-putting if, if, if you've only been drinking California wines and I give you a, a really earthy you know funky old world wine and you're not it's not going to work. It's no, just, yeah, they're, they're too different. You you're need gonna, to, you need to kind of transition. Yeah, you're going to be like, why does this taste like pennies? Yeah, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, and vice versa. You know, like Adam and I drink a lot of old world wine because we we like old world wines. But um, I had to learn how to to drink new world wines before I you know even worked at Horizon. Even before I worked at my last restaurant, which was an international list, I did exclusively Italian. And before that, I was at a restaurant that was exclusively French and Italian. Um, and I, you know, did a lot of time, spent a lot of time studying German wines, and um, and have loved Spanish wines for twenty something years, twenty two years now, 
Um, and so going from there to California Cab, Napa Cab, or Santa Barbara GSMs, which are great, it took me a little time to get there, and I had to find you know connections and connecting pieces to make it work. Um, and uh, you know, so this wine kind of sits right in that, comfortably right in that that pocket because it, it can take a little getting used to. If you drink big, rich, heavy Napa Cabs, and that's all you've ever had, the first time you're given um, you know uh, Lafitte or Latour, you're gonna be like, this doesn't taste like Cabernet. Is this Pinot Noir? You know, because <laughs> it's not overly extracted. Um, you know, it's about as extracted as, as Bordeaux can get, but it's still not that extracted. And, and, and I had the exact opposite experience where I, the wine that got me into wine was, of all things, uh, a Greg LaFollette wine, Tandem, before he went bankrupt with Tandem, uh, Peloton, mm -hmm. which was a blended Pinot Noir. And I'm a Burgundy nut, right? So you're like, wait, the wine that got you into wine was a, a Pinot Noir with some Syrah dropped into it? <laughs> yes, yes it was. Um, so I, 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 went the, I went the other way. I had to like go, you know, I had the, what was my wow moment with, and I talked about this before, was that... Uh, that uh, oh, it was from the Provence, right? Or, or it was like from that area? Like yeah, the... I had the, uh, what was, it was the, it was the rosé with... Um, that had the Tiburon in it that smelled like, um, you know, Herbs de Provence, that I never had a wine that smelled like that, that kind of got me geeked up. Um, but before that, like, yeah, like, okay, I, I liked, you know, the French stuff, but, you know, give me that rich, hedonistic California <laughs> wine. And I was, whoa, wait, 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 what's this? And then it slowly, I, so I went the exact opposite direction. Yeah. Um, and now I've, you know, if you blend your Pinot, I'm shaking, you know, shaking you violently and screaming at you. That was the wine that got me into wine, so. Kind of like Burgundy was blending Grenache into their Pinot Noir, and they didn't want to tell anybody. Either. Yeah, absolutely. You <laughs> so. know, I was I was working with someone actually from um, from the Boisset portfolio, Michael, from a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me that there is a genetic link that they discovered apparently between um, between a Pinot Noir and Syrah. I haven't researched this, so I'm just kind of going off what he said. And so there's a reason why even in southern France, it's not uncommon. To blend, like if you grow Pinot Noir, to blend it with Syrah, you know. Um, C'est la vie from Bichot makes a, a blended Pinot 60-40 with 40% or 30% Syrah. It still smells like Pinot Noir, you know, and it still in many ways smells and feels like French Pinot. It doesn't feel like anything like Burgundy, but like I can find that connection. So, um, hedonism is not, is not so bad. Yeah, Pinot Oh, one, one thing I want to say too about Rioja, why it's such an important region. So, the first person to ever write anything in Spanish was this, um, he was a, uh, a Spanish monk from Rioja, from Logroño, which I think is the capital of actually Rioja, and um, as the, the, the autonomous region, he uh, had written a poem called uh, Vida de Samayon, The Life of, of Saint Milan. And when he wrote this poem, uh, he wrote it in Spanish in the 12th century. No one had actually, that's ever been published anyways, written Spanish on paper. Because if you can read and write, you wrote in Latin, you know. Um, and that happened in, uh, that happened in Rioja. Um, and he wrote about the wines of Rioja. So the first writings in Spanish reference the amazing wines of Rioja. So there is a, a deep rich, deep rich culture, you know, there within this this really amazing, amazing DO. And it is, you know, 
just a drawback from earlier, we talk about, you know, Europe is not homogenous. Although they will say when they talk about something that's that's American, which by the way is a continent, not a country, uh, you know, they will say, oh, but I'm European. But but then they're like, ah, oh, I'm not Italian, I'm French. But then they're like, I'm not just French, I'm, you know, Parisian. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm not just from Paris, I'm from Rue Saint-Denis. And like they get like further and further down to whatever their neighborhood is. Like I'm, you know, I'm claiming Maple Street. And, um, and it's, it's really the same, you know, throughout Spain as well, but there is, I think, when you look at the culture of Spain, when you look at the food of Spain, you can really see, I wonder if we're going to get sprayed here. Maybe. It might be, uh, I wish I was wearing white. It might be like a really cool, uh, summer, summer moment yeah. here. Um, there's someone hooking up a hose not too far from us, and, you know, <laughs> and he, uh, he gave us a menacing look, so maybe he's gonna hit us with the hose. We we'll find out soon enough. It could be. Could be. Um, but you look at the cuisine through Spain, and and in this area, you see that Celtic influence. You see, um, you know, some of the Roman influence. You see some of the Greek influence. You see the Phoenician influence. Um, you know, you see the Arabic influence from the Moors and through the. Uh, even though you know when the Reconquista happened in the ninth century, trying to reclaim Spain. You know, a lot of those influences stayed. Um, the Moorish influence stayed through a lot of these areas, through their architecture, through the food. Um, and what I love about Spain is that it's been—it's not necessarily a neutral country, but it's allowed, I think, a lot of these different cultures, even through something as as horrible as the Inquisition. To, to maintain an influence within the country. Um, because at the end of the day, I think the Spanish just really understood that it was about making babies. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you make them. <laughs> yeah, it works the same way, no matter who you do it. So exactly. It's, it's true. Um, before we, you know, we, we've been sitting here, we had a great transition point when you were talking about single vineyard wines to then talk about what a Pago is, and we totally missed it because we're just not that good at this. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. We'll like, get it. We'll get it one day. We'll get it one day because um, we have this, this this lovely rosé that we're we're drinking from from Aranzano, um, and we would be remiss if we did not talk about it, albeit briefly, um, while we're talking about Spain in general. So, Do is the AOC, the the DOCG of, of Spain. Um, Pago is another section of that. So, um, for all, in its most simple terms, um, a Pago is an estate. That's an important distinction. It's an estate um, that creates a wine in a given region that is unique even to that specific region. Correct? Yeah. In, in some capacity. So, like, if you're drinking, so the one we have, Aranzano. So if I'm drinking an Aranzano red or an Aranzano white, it's a Navarre. It's going to be slightly different. Um, it's going to be unique compared to the other wines of Navarre, or wines that are labeled Navarre. So it, that, as a result, it gets its own kind of DO because it is unique and special for that for that area. Yeah, um, it, it's in many ways it's kind of like Bulgari Sasakaya is the same idea where you know there's Bulgari in, in Tuscany near Livorno that that is. Um, uh, you know, you see Ornelias there, um, Lupicae, all the Ayas are in this area, but, um, actually, I don't know if Lupicae is in, in Bulgaria, but, but, you know, it's an area that does a lot of Bordeaux varietals, but then you have Sasakai, which is really the first one, and they have their own DOC, they have their own appellation, Bulgari Sasakaya. 
um, it's the same idea here. So it is either an estate that has nothing structurally to do with the rest of the wine. So in Navarra you have wines that are oftentimes based on Grenache. Um, the wines can be really good and it can be, but they're typically more fruit forward. There's some complex wines from Navarra, but for the most part they are just a little more straightforward. And you know, it's not to, to um, be negative about those wines, they're really great. But they oftentimes don't have the complexity that you find in places like Rioja or Rivera. Um, maybe the infrastructure wasn't there to make, make wine, but you have, um, they're located in Navarra, but stylistically they have no connection. So the main varietal is Grenache um, in Navarra. It's what they would call the preferred varietal through the DO. You have Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay is actually a pretty well-known varietal there. They don't see Tempranillo in Navarra very often. Um, it's not an important grape in Navarra. So they base on Tempranillo and then Bordeaux varietals. They don't have any Grenache. Um, they actually make a banging Chardonnay as well. But they're about, um, so this is a category that was created in 2002, 2003. The first ones were in La Mancha, which I think now is 12. Uh, there are two in Northern Spain and they were the first in Northern Spain. Um, so it's either a wine that exemplifies quality that stylistically has no connection to its appellation or it's a wine of great quality that is not connected to a DOC or DO rather uh, to their to um, an appellation. So if you're just outside of Rioja and you're you know, just south of Rioja and just north of La Mancha and you're in the no man's land um, and you have an amazing winery you can apply for Vino de Pablo. Otherwise you're just you know um, a basic Spanish country wine you know, from that point. And they're awesome. I mean, they're an old estate. They date back to the 12th century. It's one contiguous estate. It's all sustainably farmed. Um, everything is hand harvested. And their rosé, which is actually what I have on my glass, and you know, for people, that's so know, pale. I mean, super that, pale. That's so pale. And it's got this like real cool earthy quality. And, like one, Navarra has a lot of clay to it, um, which can retain some water, but also retains cold. And I always find wines off of clay develop a lot of uh, more of like a stony minerality than, let's say, chalky minerality. And on a day like today, it's super, super refreshing. Hey, this is, what's cool about this wine in particular is it illustrates the complexity that you can get with rosé. Mm -hmm. We think of rosé as being simple. Even, even, you know, the more expensive one, we still think of as, as being simple. You don't get the extended maceration time you get with red, so you don't pick up the same phenolics. Um, you don't necessarily get the oak aging, so you don't get the, um, you know, the oxygen effect on it and so on. There's all these other components that just, you know, make us think of rosé as being simple. It doesn't have to be. It can be earthy. It can be complex. It can have all these different layers to yep. it. And you know, this has that. If you're if you're someone who's used to, and I love Provence, so I know this is not meant to. Provence tends to be um, fruit forward. Yep. And, and, and super floral. You know. You know and, and if if that's what you're into, this your the initial taste of this one might be like, ooh, like what's going on here? Like where's my where's my strawberry raspberry? I'm not getting that like right away. Um, I'm not getting those violets on the nose and whatnot. Yeah. But if you give yourself, you know, get past that first sip, try it again, get to the third or the fourth one. It's the red fruit is there. 
It's just there's more stuff going on with this. And not, that's not saying that Provence Rosé is simple. This is just different yeah. in comparison. Absolutely. I'm going to pick up this conversation. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know he's being recorded. I know. 100%. <laughs> yeah, these are, these are uh, I mean, for me, like, Spain is such a such an important part. I mean, partly to my, my wife is, you know, from Spain. My family comes actually from um, Catalonia. So they come from, you know, near, uh, actually in the border, it's a town called Lleida. It's the border of Catalan and Aragon in the mountains. Um, and, you know, a lot of the history that I've learned about wine and about my family's history, I didn't really learn until I actually started falling in love with these wines. Because uh, that was like an ancestor way back when that my mom finally told me about you know, before she passed, and and so like now it's like all right, well I want to honor that that sure. tradition as much as possible, you know, and and uh, and the Mexican heritage which makes some great wines in the Valle de Guadalupe, uh, which actually had a family member uh, owned I think in the twenties, oh, wow. either until fairly recently, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, so that I mean, I don't know, that's Spain. It's in a hour and yeah. ten minute rambling. Yeah, <laughs> broadly. broadly. So I, I, normally we, we focus on a specific region and kind of delve deep. Um, we didn't do that today, but that's that's okay. It's the again. It, I think it contributes to is Spain. We don't have as a familiar on uh, mass. We're not as familiar with the different regions and so on of, of Spain. So uh, we will at some point. Go okay. We're only talking about Rioja today. We're only talking about Ribera del Duero today. We're only talking about Cava today. We're only talking about um, you know Rioja Spacha's Alberino today, or, or someone whatever it is. But um, it was good to just you know say Spain is Spain is here. It's important. It's different. It has the a lot of the same things that make us love France or Italy. It has a lot of those same characteristics too. Yep. Uh, and you know it's just finding that bridle that that speaks to you. you know? Absolutely. And I mean, there's such diversity in in. Um, geologically, so like apparently in Spain you have every single soil type from every single geologic era. Um, you can fit Spain in the United States 30 times and you have almost every single microclimate that you'd have in the United States other than maybe the bayou. But you know there's areas that are humid and hot, um, there are areas that are desertic, there are areas that are alpine, there are areas that are mountainous, there are areas that are forested. Um, there are areas that are like New England, there are areas that are like Cal Carolina and California, and you know, almost like Hawaii if you're in some of the islands, you know, the Mediterranean. So I mean, it's like, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty diverse landscape and viticulturally, historically, it, it is as diverse, you know, as I think any, anywhere, and I would say, you know, in some, some ways more so than, than a lot of other cultures that I've I've at least studied, you know, and, and wines that I've studied, um, because there's something for everybody in Spain. Absolutely. So, I think that for the next show, I think you should, you should tell us where we're going. Oh. Because I, because I, you gave me Spain, but I wanted, I was willing you to give me Spain. This, this is true. This I was is like, true. in my head, I was like, Spain. You can probably see oh. with the anguish in my face. He wants to go you to know. Spain. Oh, and I have meat juice. Mm -hmm. This is because he he wants me to do all the talking next time. This is essentially <laughs> what he wants because he's talked like the last three or four times we've done this. Um, wow, you know, I, you know, and if that's what we're doing, 
We're gonna go to my other binky. Okay. We're gonna go to Alsace. That's what we're doing. We're gonna go to my 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 other uh, my other kind of so the that that uh, tandem wine I spoke about you know ten minutes ago, fifteen minutes ago. The kind of was like, whoa, this is the one that got me into wine. Yep. Um, the white the white wine that got me into white wine initially was not white burgundy. It was um, it was Alsatian reason. So um, I don't know if that's what I'm gonna do when we do, it, but I think we should go to Alsace because that's a cool it's a cool area. It's got a cool story, um, and those wines are you know obscenely good and we we carry some good ones so we, we don't have to um summit for alsace perfect yeah we have the best producer actually <laughs> um which is going to be really great to talk about that works for me and i haven't you know in my head i'm trying to think of like how do we connect spain in alsace and um so i'll work on that and i'll come up with a song for it for next week and try to find that that connection I can guarantee you all, it will not be Justin Bieber. <laughs> it might be Lindsay Lohan, but it won't be Justin Bieber. <laughs> uh, it might be Jessica Simpson. Yeah. Love her. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. I'm going to lead us out with some Christina Pato and the Galician Connection. Yeah, the video of her with Yo-Yo Ma is like, it's so cool because it's, she's playing and she's very cheeky in how she plays and how she interacts with the other musicians. And Yo-Yo Ma is just sitting there as happy as can be. He's not doing anything, it's serious music, but he's not doing like, it's not Bach, it's not, you know, yeah. anything complex. It is just fun. I, I mean, they're all seasoned performers. And it's super, like, especially when the tabla player plays, it's like incredible. But he's just like, he's going for the